Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show, I will be speaking with Michael Ignatieff about his new book, On Consolation, Finding Solace in Dark Times. Michael is the former head of Canada's Liberal Party, director of the Carr Center for Human Rights at the Harvard Kennedy School, and president of Central University in Vienna, Austria, where he is currently a professor of history. Michael is the author of nearly 20 books, including one which was a Booker finalist. Michael, welcome to That Said. Nice to be here. Before we go into the book, tell us a bit about yourself, because you have a very interesting resume. Well, Michael, I'm a Canadian. Uh, I have been a politician in my home country. I've been a professor at Harvard. I've been the president of a university in Central Europe, first in Budapest and then in Vienna. And I'm a historian by training. And um, I, uh, uh, what can I say? I'm, I'm speaking to you from Vienna now. And this book is a return to my roots as a historian. And a, and I think it, it's also fair to say I'm in my 70s. So it's a book that reflects that there's some miles on the clock. Um, and so it's a, an attempt to, to think about that um, and uh, also bring to life some of my heroes. The book, you say, came out of a lecture you gave in Utrecht in the Netherlands. And you said, I came there to give a lecture about justice and politics, but I discovered consolation in the words, the music, and the tears of recognition in the audience. This was about the justice and politics in the Psalms. So tell us a little bit about that experience and how that led you down this path that led to this book. Yeah, it was an amazing thing, Michael. There were, you know, a couple thousand people in this hall in Utrecht, and there were four great choirs, including uh, Trinity Wall Street, and they they sang all 150 of the psalms or settings of the psalms, and they ran the words both in Dutch and in English over the top of the hall. And the weekend had this extraordinary effect on the audience. People were there were tears. You could tell people were being told something of tremendous importance. But this was not a religious gathering, and most people, I don't suspect, were religious. And I myself am not religious. I My, my dad was a Russian Orthodox because I come from um, Russian roots. My mother was what my dad used to call a godless Republican. So I didn't grow up in a, in a religious home. I always grew up in a home that respected religious belief, but it, it's not beliefs that, that I share. And so here I was in a situation where religious language was having this overwhelming effect on me and on the audience. And so I began thinking about why I felt comforted and then consoled uh, by the experience. And that's set me off on this journey. And you say that the ancient religious language exerted such a spell on you as a non-believer that you felt you had no choice but to look at the underlying reasons for such an emotional response to something that you didn't have faith in, in a religious sense. Yeah, I went back, to, I just went back to the Psalms. I, I sat in a deck chair all summer and just read them back and forward and back and forward. And I think one of the things I discovered is that, um, 
They know what we need consolation for. You know, the Psalms know despair. They know defeat. They know loss. They know loneliness. They know fear. Um, and uh, I think that gave me a clue to what the, the experience of consolation is. When you're consoled, you have to you have to feel that the person consoling you knows what you need consolation for. When someone says, I've been there, you've got to believe that they've been there. And with the psalmists, I felt they had been there. And that was a strange experience because we don't know anything about the psalmists. And they're 2,000 years ago. Uh, and yet I felt this immediate connection their deep understanding of what it is to be a human being. And so that is, I think, the beginning of what makes them consoling. They understand what we need consolation for. It's interesting. The Psalms are essentially hymns, uh, and they break into various categories, songs of praise of God's work, then royal psalms about the matters of king's coronation and stuff. But I think the most moving of them is and there are psalms of thanksgiving but it's these individual laments and these communal laments that i think grab you the most maybe as we're going to work our way through some of the 17 chapters of the book maybe you can talk a little bit about these communal laments these individual laments that find them so meaningful in the psalms well it's just you know that phrase that we all know from the psalms you know, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you know, I, feel, I will fear no evil. Um, that sense of a of a of a valley, the sense of a shadow uh, and the sense of how that fear of death can creep up inside you is so vivid in, in that image of the uh, of that famous psalm. Um, and then let me f I've I've emphasized the despairing or fear-catching side of the Psalms, but let's also remember the, the the straight consolation side of the Psalms, which is simply the image of the shepherd. Um, it's a, you know, the more you think about it, this old stuff is very comforting. The idea that it's rainy and snowy in a field at night, and you're a little sheep stuck in a bog somewhere, stuck in a hedge, and the shepherd comes out in the rain and the fog and picks you up and takes you home. I mean, this is very, it works very deep into our, our, our ancestral, personal, familial memories. Uh, the sense of being cared for is very deeply uh, affecting, very emotional in the Psalms. And so um, even those who don't believe there is a shepherd with a capital S can feel moved by, um, by that. Um, people have then said to me, but wait a minute, isn't that just a metaphor? Aren't you just, aren't you just being carried away by the sheer beauty of the language of the Psalms? And I think that's certainly fair that the beauty helps, uh, to, to, to comfort you. But I think what consoles is the sense that human experience has not changed very much in 2000 years. And so to be consoled is to feel this solidarity in time, in deep time, back to the beginning of human experience. Because the Psalms are among the earliest recorded words that we have from the deep past. And 
that sense of continuity in time, I found, um, the more I thought about it, deeply consoling. You write, to understand consolation, it is necessary to begin with the moments when it is impossible. Consolation is an act of solidarity in space, keeping company with the bereaved, helping a friend through difficult moments. But it is also an act of solidarity in time, reaching back to the dead and drawing meaning from the words that they left behind. That's the essence of what you were trying to do in the book, find this solidarity in time, yes? Correct, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, And I felt it particularly in the Psalms. I felt in some deep way they are our uh, contemporaries. And um, and I think that's an important thought in the 21st century because um, uh, there's an idea of being in the modern world which in which we think, you know, we're marooned, we're alone. None of the ancient traditions can help us. We don't. And, and we have an idea of being a secular society that I think predefines us as being unable to access or unable to contact the the comfort provided by the Bible or or whatever religious text we want. I don't believe that. I, I, I think you can return to these texts, even though they're very old, and even though you may not believe all the everything they they offer to you by way of hope, and still derive uh, consolation from them. I don't want to push this too far, though. You said earlier, Michael, that you got to understand consolation, you have to understand when it's impossible. And I think that's very true. Every one of us has sat beside someone who's just lost their husband or their mother or their father or their brother or their sister and encountered that terrible moment when words fail you. You just, there's nothing you can say. They are so bereft. And I, I think that's also one of the things that this book is trying to talk about. That is how far words can console and when is the moment when words fail us. You know, this is my, I've not written a book of happy talk or inspirational writing. It's about, in fact, the ways in which or the moments at which words break down for us. Um, and even the Psalms understand that. The, all of this ancient language understood that there are moments where language fails. And that's part of the human situation. There are some things that happen to us that we cannot get over ever. And that's just tells us we're very frail creatures. The tradition in Judaism, when you show up at a shiva call, a condolence call, first, most important is show up. You have to show up. But secondly, I, my recollection of the tradition is that you don't speak essentially until the person that you're seeking to console speaks to you, letting you know that they're ready to speak. Your role is this solidarity in space to be there, and then you wait. And if there's no conversation, you've still done your best to be helpful in this time of consolation shiva i've sat shiva it's a beautiful tradition and partly that that wisdom uh which it understands which is just being there is half of it one of the things that my my book says over and over again is that we are consoled by people we're not consoled by doctrines 
we're not control, con- consoled by theories. Um, we're consoled by people, by their presence. And in Shiva, you sit there and they, and, and the point is to feel your presence, uh, and then to wait until they speak. You know, it's a, it's a, this old stuff understood the deepest roots of, you know, how human beings are comforted. And that's why it's so important to, to keep those traditions alive. You just used the word comforted and you make a point in the book, I think a good point that consolation and comfort are, are not the same thing. Uh, and maybe you can flesh that out a little bit. Yeah, Michael, if, if I was going to comfort you, if you suffered a serious loss and we were close friends, I would, I would give you a hug, you know, I, I, or I would sit with you. Um, I just sit with you and, and I would, I'd, 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 uh, you know, then eventually say, let's go out for a beer. I just keep you company. And there would be hopefully comfort in the company. Uh, comfort is very physical. Comfort is very, um, you know, when, when your when your son or your daughter scrapes their knee, you, you sit them down on your lap and you, you know, you kind of try, try and make them feel better. You try and distract them. Consolation is something else. Consolation is where you seek to give meaning to an experience and how you seek to find words to make someone understand why what has happened to them has happened. Um, and you try to, to fill the emptiness around them with, uh, with some meanings. And that's often why consolation fails, because it's often very difficult to give meaning to, say, the sudden uh, unexpected uh, death of a, of a loved one. There's just nothing to say. But you... You try to give meaning to it. When you suffer a failure, and I've had plenty of failure in my life, you, you console yourself by thinking, well, I gave it my best shot. I didn't leave anything on the table. I tried my hardest. You know, it, those, that language of consolation that you use with yourself is often at the edge of falsehood. You know, we, <laughs> we tell ourselves a lot of stories to get ourselves through difficult times. But that's what consolation is, the attempt to provide meaning so that we can bear suffering and overcome it. And the key element of consolation is, I think, hope to give us some sense once we've got through a difficult uh, experience that we can begin to live in hope again. And by, by hope, I don't mean anything very exalted or metaphysical or religious. I just mean the willingness, the desire to put the next foot forward and keep going you say essentially that consolation is the opposite of resignation that consolation has as its essential element this notion of hope the belief that we can recover from loss defeat disappointment and that the time that remains to us however short offers us possibilities to start again that failing is better many people hate the very idea of consolation because they associate it with resignation and in turn with giving up and i try to tell a story about consolation which is connected to hope and not as i say in this grandiose idea of hope um, historical hope religious hope but just in the very concrete sense we can all understand of the belief that I can go on, <laughs> the belief that I want to go on, that's the hope that I'm <clears throat> talking about. And that's the hope that I, I saw 
we're currently in these works uh, that I try to bring to life in the book. You say, I think, presciently that consolation is only possible if hope is possible, and hope is only possible if life makes sense to us. To be consoled is to make peace with the order of the world without renouncing our hopes for justice and to go on living. It's an important concept, I think, that you flesh out here. Well, but and all of it's difficult. You know, it's easy for me to say that. But, you know, yesterday, uh, Michael, I was talking to a woman in Holland who phoned me up about the book. And she said, you know, she has a friend who wants to commit suicide. Uh, Suicide poses the question of whether of what you do when someone believes there is no meaning to life, literally no meaning. And there are such people, and they need to be respected. Suicide, the choice of suicide, is always to be respected. Although it's infuriating and and terrifying choice, there are people for whom there just doesn't seem to be sufficient meaning to their existence to justify going on at all. So again, I, 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 I don't want us to avert our eyes from that reality. There are just a lot of people for whom as my mother used to say of her brother, life is hard for that guy, you know, and there's some people for whom it's just extremely difficult to generate meaning. But I don't think you can be consoled about life unless you can generate some meaning. And I don't think you, if unless you can generate meaning, you can't generate the hope that allows you to carry on to the next day and the day after that. You have Backlov Havel telling us, an important thing that you mentioned earlier, which is when we face loss and defeat, we have to confront our own limitations and that this is where consolation can be the hardest to achieve because in the face of our failures, our own personal failures, we're tempted to take refuge in illusion, but there's no consolation in illusion. We have to live in truth as your chapter on Havel tells us. Maybe you can talk a little bit about this living in truth and the denial of illusion. Well, in Havel's case, it was uh, having to face up while he was in prison with the fact that he had uh, given in to his interrogators in 1977 and promised that he would step back from his role as a dissident if they let him out early. And he felt afterwards that he betrayed himself. And what's really admirable about Havel is that he he faces up to that moment and he says, you have to own failure. You can't pretend it was someone else. You can't pretend um, it was all just a kind of misunderstanding. You have to own failure all the way down. And it's only when you own failure that you can be consoled for it. And And I think that's a lesson I've certainly had to learn in my own life. And God darn it, it's not easy. I mean, I was in politics for five and a half years and um, it wasn't the greatest success in the world. You know, I, I fought three elections and won two, but I lost the third one pretty badly. And after that, you have to, you have to sit yourself down and, and, and be truthful. Um, And being truthful here is complicated. You have to take responsibility for what's truly your own responsibility and then you have to say, well, look, you know, I'm not entirely to blame for that failure. There are other people who have to bear their share of responsibility. But the part that's yours, you have to own. <clears throat> and that's what I think Havel means by living in truth. And it ain't easy, but it's essential to consolation because false consolation doesn't console. 
if you tell yourself a story um, and let yourself off the hook, it's not going to console you for very long. We've seen that very recently in U.S. presidential election politics, but let's not go there. So the book is a collection of portraits arranged in historical order, each devoted to a single person in a time of extremity and how they use the traditions that they inherited to seek consolation. As you said, not all of them succeeded, but there are lessons to be learned in their struggles, and maybe we can divine some hope for ourselves in it. So, which I think was was a great structure for the book. And I'd like, if we could, to go through some of them. We're not going to have time to go through all 17. The thing, though, is I think we, the best place to start is at the beginning. I think there was a Sound of Music song about that. And we've talked about Psalms already. But tell us, if you would, about Job, because he's sort of like the parent of consolation. Well, Job is, at first sight, a really terrible place to start because it's the most unconsoling and awful story probably in the Bible. This guy, innocent guy with a, you know, living a good godly life gets visited by all these horrible plagues and visitations of God, and he ends up in rags alone, um, covered in sores from the plague. And but this is the moment when I, I think he's key to the story about consolation because he shakes his fist at the sky and he says to God, why have you done this? I don't deserve this. I am innocent. And this demand by a ragged old man shaking his fist at the sky is, I think, one of the most stupendous moments in world culture. And astoundingly, God replies out of the whirlwind. God says, who the hell are you to question my justice? Who the I mean, I'm God, for heaven's sake. I created the heavens, the stars, the, the firmament that you're standing on, and you dare to question my justice? And, you know, Job eventually understands that uh, the wrong question to ask when you suffer is, why me? There's often no meaning in why you've been singled out by cancer, by leukemia, by a stroke, by this, by that. Um, no point asking that question. The point is to endure and to keep seeking, if you can, meaning for your experience. And what makes Job so courageous is this absolutely implacable search to find uh, meaning for his experience, which is, I think, at the is at the root of all of our searches for, for consolation. So that's why I began with Job. But it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a horrible story, as, as everybody who's read it knows, but a truly great one. In it, Job is tested. The angel, which is Satan, says to God, if you sort of let me at him, I will show you that this faith in God is transitory. God said, do to him as you will, you just can't kill him. So he kills his wife, he kills his kids, he, he devastates him economically. He, he, as you said, he's sitting, you know, dying of sores and yet he does not renounce his faith, which is ultimately what leads to his restoration of health and life. He ends up having seven more children and the like, but it's this unwavering faith in 
the face of adversity that is the tale of Job that's so meaningful, I think. Yes. And even if you don't believe in that very difficult God, um, what you can believe in in Job is this holding on to the feeling that the universe or your life in the universe can be given meaning. That's the element of, that I take from Job, and and I found touching when I when I read it. That's why I began the book there. You go from Job to Paul, another interesting person who essentially created the new language of Christian consolation from the the Jewish prophets. Actually, he was born Saul um, until he had this epiphany, I guess, uh, out in the desert. And he's interesting because in his epistle to the Galatians, is it that he really creates a universal faith in humankind? Yes, it's born of the return of Jesus and, and the like, but it's it's a very egalitarian approach he takes. And maybe we can talk a little bit about Paul and how Paul features into the consolation that you've articulated in the book. Yeah, this is a, a man who's born a Jewish zealot and then under the impact of seeking to convert um, Greeks and Romans and people all over the Eastern Mediterranean in the decades after Christ begins to discover that the Christian faith could have appeal beyond the Jewish faithful and he suddenly then in Galatians pronounces this, you know, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, but all are one in Jesus Christ. And that's a pretty revolutionary message. And it is, as I try to argue, the origin of all forms of moral universalism that we've ever had uh, ever since. Um, but it's the, the, the thing about Paul is that it's horrible to be Paul in the 30 years after Jesus's crucifixion. He's thrown into prison. He's humiliated. He nearly dies or shipwreck. He's bound in chains. He suffers terribly as he seeks to create and sustain these Christian communities. And that Paul interests me deeply because it's a Paul who begins his ministry thinking the Messiah is just coming. You know, the Messiah has been predicted by the Jewish prophets of, of my tradition, and Jesus has been crucified. He's risen from the dead, and he's coming back, and the world will end, and the perfect world will be ushered in. He literally believes that. And after 30 years, it doesn't happen. So what do you do when the Messiah doesn't come? And that's the problem, I think, that, that uh, Paul has to face. That's the thing that tests his faith and, and, and belief. And I, I try to argue, and it, I think it's a pretty possibly heretical interpretation of St. Paul, that, that one of the things he discovers is the enormous importance of human love. Uh, one of the things about the epistles, whenever you read them with a fresh eye, is the frequency with which he mentions his collaborators. You know, there's this woman called Priscilla, and then there's another woman called Phoebe, and then there's another guy called Thomas, and there's another guy. He mentions these people. They're kind of shout-outs to the people without whom he couldn't have done anything. 
But they're more than shout-outs. There's some way in which he begins to understand that their love, their faith in him is what kept him going. And so the, the, the sublime evocation of love that you see in his epistle to the Corinthians is, I think, an attempt on his part to say, look, over 30 years, the thing that kept me going, the thing that consoled me, the thing that made me keep my faith was the love of the people I worked with. And there is there is there are few more touching and passionate descriptions of human love than that epistle. And, you know, uh, that's the poll that um, really um, moved me. And I hope will move readers when they when they see it through my eyes. And the thing, though, that Paul teaches us as well, and I agree with the notion of all you need is love and, and you know, human compassion. And we'll see that elaborated on in some of the other chapters. But he does write, um, or you write of him, that suffering teaches perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. A man learns to console himself by accepting a large share of tribulation and that suffering was at the core of human experience. So he does, he does say essentially, you know, we all come from the earth. We're all going back to the earth. Suffering is what happens here on earth and, you know, just deal with it. But he has this religious overlay and, and then we'll be in, in heaven with our Lord and everything will be you know, uh, peaches and cream. But, I, you know, I think the most, you know, still shocking aspect of Christianity to everybody and one of the parts of Christianity that, you know, I certainly resist and many people resist is the is the cult of suffering, the, the sense of that this is a, a faith built on the idea of a, a man crucified for his beliefs. And, um the best I can make of Paul's idea of suffering is simply you can't live a human life without it. He seems to be saying you can't, you must console yourself with the truth that this, this portion of suffering is, is what it is to be a human being. So don't be afraid of suffering. Don't run from suffering. Don't think it's an illness from which you can recover. Don't think it's something that, you know, good therapy can remove from your life. Suffering is built into the experience of being a human being. And that part of what Paul says is, I think, truthful and important, although difficult to accept and difficult even to understand. And we saw that in your chapter on Cicero, who essentially is inconsolable and maybe we can talk a little about who was he and what was you know all these are tests if you will in some sense all these chapters the protagonists of each is tested in some way so tell us a little bit about who was having having spent a couple of chapters at the beginning of the book talking about the hebrew prophets and and the early uh, christian leaders i then spend quite a lot of time talking about uh, the the roman stoics and the chief of those stoics in a way was Cicero, the most famous orator of his time, a, a lawyer famous in the courtroom, famous in the Senate, uh, one of the most famous orators of, of his time. And he is a philosopher. Uh, and so he preaches 
um, the Stoic doctrine that uh, you can suffer less in life if you reduce your appetites and engage in masculine self-control. And uh, all that's fine. And he writes a lot of letters to console his male friends and everything's fine. And then suddenly in 45 uh, BC, his beloved only daughter dies and he completely comes apart and his letters, which have survived are an absolutely extraordinary uh, record of an aging man coming to terms with the death of a daughter who died at 30 in childbirth. And what's interesting is that his stoic philosophy doesn't help him. He's taught this stuff to other people, but when it happens to him, he comes apart. And the interesting thing that then occurs is that all of his male friends who are in politics say basically, shape up, Cicero, come on, come on. Everybody's beginning to talk. You keep weeping all the time. Come on. You're a man. You've got to get back on your horse and be the be the Cicero that we admire. And and Cicero initially says, look, I can't do this. It's just I'm I'm broken apart. And eventually, uh, by the fall, after six months of mourning, he decides the only thing he can do is to become the Cicero of old and resume this austere mantle of self-control. The reason that this story is important is that people read Cicero for a thousand years after that, and they're still reading Cicero today. Cicero is the source of a certain doctrine of male stoic self-control that I think has had an influence on how men go through suffering and loss to this day. I mean, to be a man is not to cry. To be a man is to be have your emotions under control. Crying is for women. And this stuff is absolutely coded uh, in the Roman Stoics from the beginning. And I want to say that this code of self-control has you know, um, imposed a certain cost on men ever since. Uh, and so that's why I think Cicero is such an interesting story. It, it is a fascinating story because he essentially has written a book on consolation, where um, which still exists to this day, and he says, "This is what you guys should do," and then he can't himself do it. Yeah, and and that allows me to. It's one of the moments where I I began to realize that we are consoled by people, not by doctrines, and doctrines are currently break down. Cicero's doctrine of Stoic self-control breaks down, even for the man who wrote the darn thing. And that teaches you something about uh, what, where consolation lies. Consolation lies in the, in the comfort and love and help and assistance of real people close by. And when he gets that, um, Cicero then begins to recover. I'd like to turn to, uh, we're taking a little bit out of um, the exact historical order, but we'll go back and forth a little bit as themes emerge. And Michel de Montaigne um, is sort of an interesting compare and contrast to me, at least it was in respect of Paul and the Psalms and, and Job. And tell us a little about who, who first always tell us who these people are and then what their uh, approach to consolation was, please. Well, Michel Montaigne is a French nobleman um, 
caught in the middle of the civil war, the religious civil wars in France in the 16th century. So he's writing in the 15, he's writing 1585, six, seven, eight, um, in a little chateau in the southwest of France near Bordeaux. Um, he is the most learned man of his time. He's a quite important man because he's trying to negotiate a truce to end the civil war. Um, He's also living through a plague, which makes the it's his relevance to COVID pretty obvious. I mean, the plague is sweeping through his region and carrying off people. And he's trying to he's trying to console himself for you know war, plague, basically the collapse of his of his world. He's the most learned man of his time with his famous library in a tower, and he has you know, Cicero's on the shelves, you know, St. Paul's on his shelves, the Hebrew Bible's on his shelves. But what's interesting about Montaigne is that he doesn't go to the shelves for consolation. He begins to realize that he <clears throat> he wants to put the books aside. He begins to think that the things that have consoled him most are the routines of daily life, a well-made bed, the company of uh, a woman in his bed, um, the pleasures of the body. Um, and uh, he feels that what consoles us uh, is life itself. And you cannot be consoled unless you have a basic visceral, physical love of the experience of life itself. And so the, the great essays that he writes at the end of his life are kind of hymn to the pleasures and delights of ordinary life. And and I, of all the people in the book, I think he's the one with whom I have the most emotional sympathy um, because he has this wonderful sense that the pleasure of life, the simple pleasures of life are in, in, in one way, one of the most consoling aspects of life. And that's why he's kind of the pivot in the center of the book he he does not believe in the religious consolations that the earlier chapters talk about. He's put those aside. He's also put the learnings, learning of the classics behind him, and he's now looking life straight in the eye. And what he sees, he loves. And this love of life is very moving in Montaigne and beautifully written. And if you've never read an essay by Montaigne, all I can say is go out and get one because they're just Fantastic. You write of him, as you just articulated, that he moved the search for consolation away from the mind to the feeling, second by second, that life was worth living simply because you could feel its rhythms coursing through your veins. Instead of trusting in God's salvation or his mercy, he trusted instead to the deeper attachments we all have our love of life and other people. And that's a very important, I mean, he's not an Epicurean. He's not, you know, a hedonist, but, but he, he does find consolation outside of the realm of the spiritual, which is really the first person um, who meaningfully articulates that, I think. Yes. And I, I think that he, he also has an, an idea of hope, uh, that is very much connected to the love of life in the moment. You have hope. What, what you have hope for is you want your life to continue. 
you like your life sufficiently to want it to continue. Um, you're attached to the physicality of your life, to the routines of your life, uh, to the little things that you've created that make your life your own. And I think Montaigne sees this incredibly clearly, and um, it kind of rescues consolation from the necessity of having some big cosmic meaning for life that you've got to have or <laughs> you can't be consoled. He says, forget the cosmic stuff, forget the metaphysical stuff, forget the the the, the religious stuff. Focus on what's in front of you, which is, do you have a life that you have shaped as your own, as your own creation? And is it a life that you want to continue? If so, that's, that's what you have to focus on. And that, I think, is very wise. I'm jumping forward because I think, again, in terms of the theme, Camus similarly talks, as did Michel de Montaigne, about the importance of relying on one another um, to find consolation. Maybe you can talk about uh, Camus, because he similarly was writing in the times of a plague and times of war. Um, exactly, exactly. Um, and I think Montaigne, uh, Camus knew and loved uh, Montaigne for some of the same reasons I do. Camus, as, as we know, is a young Algerian-born uh, Frenchman who is caught in um, occupied France, it's occupied by the Nazis in 1942. And it's during that occupation that he writes his greatest book, The Plague, which imagines a plague taking over um, an Algerian city. And and he imagines uh, a doctor fighting the plague. And it's one of the most famous metaphors in literature because the doctor is a word stands for the resistance to evil and plague stands for the evil of <clears throat> occupation and the evil of, 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 of general wickedness in the world. And, um, and Mont- uh, <clears throat> takes the experience of being in occupation and under occupation in, uh, in France and turns it into this, magnificent metaphor of the human struggle against um, against evil but one of the things that he and it is also has a very important dialogue in the in the book between the doctor and a priest uh, over the death of a child and the priest says well this is god's this is god's will that this child has died of plague and the doctor in a very famous speech says, look, I will never worship a God that will allow a child to die with this kind of suffering. Um, and so it's a passionate rejection of the traditions of religious consolation that are discussed earlier in the book. But one of the things that's not been noticed enough, I think, about Camus is that Camus doesn't think that, you know, because there isn't, you know, religious validation uh, we're all lost. He actually thinks it's perfectly clear what we have to do when people are suffering or in pain. We have to sit with them. And one of the my favorite characters in the book is a is a character who almost says nothing, which is a the the mother of the doctor who sits all night with one of the characters as he lies dying of the plague, 
and just sits with him in the dark, uh, holding his hand so he won't die alone. And, you know, of of all the images of what uh, we want to, of the solidarity we need to show towards those who are suffering, this is one of the great images in in, uh, 20th century uh, literature. And it's an image, in my view, of comfort and consolation. Uh, and that's why I, I made such, gave such emphasis to, to Camus. Um, and, uh, because, you know, he, he, he's famous for writing as if the world is absurd. The world has no meaning. It returns us back to, to Job. The, the world is full of meaningless violence and suffering. And Camus says, yes, all that's true. But in the moment when you see someone, um, suffering in this way you have clear duties they're not we don't have to we don't have to get fancy here you know what you ought to do and you ought to be sitting with someone and trying to relieve their suffering and i find that a a, a very moving part of his work in the face of evil and suffering camus seems to be saying that the the lines between the progress and science people the the religious um, faith people says it's all irrelevant. These are all abstractions. And you write of him in the face of death and evil. What mattered most was not who was right, but who comforted the suffering. Yes, that's, that's the core of Camus humanism. And I think it's, um, one of the aspects of Camus that I think is so interesting in relation to COVID, because we're in the middle of another plague, is that Camus notices something that I think is important, which is that some people think we should be consoled by the promise of science. I mean, science developed a vaccine in you know less than a year, and we're all getting vaccinated, and it'll help us to get out, and that's that gives us hope, and so it's consoling to us. But Camus notices that that is not consoling to someone who has lost someone from COVID. That is, these stories about the scientific progress are no consolation to someone who's lost someone. Um, and so he he wants to put an emphasis back on, again, on people, on sitting with people, on being there when someone uh, suffers. Cut the doctrine, cut the cut the speeches, just just be there. That's a message that I take from from um, Camus that I think's relevant and important for today. And it seems to me, Michael, that uh, as a thread, your chapter on bearing witness, uh, mm-hmm. the three poets that you speak of sort of extend Camus in some sense that you have an obligation to be with the suffering, but you also, and they were, and you can tell us about Primo Levi and, and Radnoti and, and Anna Matova, but they seem to be saying not just to be present, but also to bear witness to that suffering so in the in history that won't be forgotten do i have that right you certainly do you've read the book very carefully um these three people that i write about anna akhmatova uh, wrote a great poem that 
memorialize those who were killed by Stalin. Uh, Primo Levi was the great um, writer about Auschwitz. He, a young Italian chemist who survived Auschwitz because he was confined there between 1944 and the end of Auschwitz in 1945. And the third person who's not known by anybody, Miklos Radnoti, is a Hungarian poet who is, I think, the only poet I know who actually wrote great poetry on a death march. Um, he never lived to see those poems published because he died during the death march, but the poems survived. And all three of them, Akhmatova, Levi, and Radnoti, believed that they had a responsibility to witness the Holocaust, witness uh, this abomination. Um, and they're a very important part of this book because, you know, after Auschwitz, there may be no consolation, right? Once you see what human beings can do to each other, um, one response would be to be inconsolable. You can't trust human beings again. You can't believe in history again. You can't believe in progress. You can't believe in anything after the Holocaust and what Stalin did to millions of people in Russia. But these three people are saying, look, that's not the right way to think about this. The right way to think about this is that we must bear witness to what happened. We must record what happened unsparingly. We must keep the facts straight before, so that the future is never allowed to forget. Um, and if we do that, uh, we can create uh, hope for the future. The problem here, and this is where it gets complicated and in a way tragic, is, is, is whether uh, we, we, the succeeding generations, the people who read Primo Levi's great work on Auschwitz, um, have actually taken that message to heart. And, and what would be dispiriting to Primo Levi, who died in 1987, uh, is the, re the reappearance of anti-Semitism, the reappearance of racial hatred, the reappearance of intolerance, the reappearance of racial violence. Um, and we are not yet in any project of extermination, but we're not a million miles away from it either. And so these great witnesses hoped that by virtue of their witness, we would never do this again, that people would read what they wrote and never do it again. And I think what is so troubling about reading these great works is that <laughs> We can't be sure it won't happen again. I mean, let's remember in, in relation to, say, Stalin, that the current ruler of Russia, Vladimir Putin, believes that the death of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Stalinist system was the greatest catastrophe in 20th century history. So, <laughs> you know, if a country is ruled by someone who has so little understanding of what the 20, what Stalin did and what uh, the communist regime did to his country, you can only be a little alarmed about uh, the future of a country that's in his hands. That's an example of what I mean. That, that is, these people hope that their witness would bring an end to this, but it hasn't ended. We, the succeeding generations, were their consolation. 
They say that while history may have no consolations to offer because it never ends and its meaning is never settled, it does leave us with duties. It leaves us with responsibilities that we have to, you know, have faith in the righteousness of what they were saying. And so they found consolation in us. And the question is whether we can live up to their hopes. Indeed, indeed. And and we do have responsibilities not to falsify history, not allow the history to be falsified. You know, our societies are convulsed by painful debates about the past, um, about slavery, for example, in the United States, about the Holocaust in Germany. Um, and, you know, our, our generation and the generations that come after have just a very simple duty, which is to stare the facts in the face and not let anybody falsify them so that we understand what we're, we're dealing with. Uh, and if we discharge that responsibility, then there's a chance we can avoid a terrible future. Most of the chapters of the book refer to the writings of the 17 protagonists, but Two, I'd like you to spend a little bit of time with us because they're different and they're Gustav Mahler and El Greco because one was a uh, composer, the other was a, a painter. And you speak to one of Mahler's pieces of music, which I'll let you pronounce, that begins with Kinder. Yeah. Um, and then El Greco's famous, The Burial of the Count of Orgaz. And so here... In your book, you're showing how art and music can be convincingly consoling. And I found that to be terrific um, examples of what consolation is. So can you spend some time with us on those two guys? I'm I'm glad you brought those up, Michael, because I think that uh, one of the things we all know about music is that music can have powers of consolation that go far beyond what words can do. And when you're in a memorial service um, uh, for a friend, suddenly they play a piece of music and it just says everything that, you know, the people from the platform are struggling to say. Um, I remember one unbelievable memorial service for a friend of mine who the last piece of music was... um, Fred Astaire saying, I'm singing, I'm in heaven. And you thought you, you, it was so perfect an evocation of this man's wonderful sense of humor and, and his, you know, and, and who, who doesn't love Fred Astaire, but to get back to, get back to Mahler. Um, I wanted to talk about Mahler because Mahler wrote an extraordinary piece of music called the Kinder Toten leader, which are, five songs on the death of children, which he would have thought is a terrible subject. But Mahler chose this subject in the 1890s because he had lost brothers uh, to scarlet fever uh, when he was a little child. So he knew about this kind of grief very early on in his life. And then when he had a chance to set some songs to music, um, he chose this theme he chose to set uh, a series of poems that had been written by a man who'd lost his children. And Mahler puts them to music, and they're some of the most beautiful songs in the German 
uh, repertoire. And the point about telling the story again is that Mahler wrote the songs before he had children of his own. And then he had a children. And then he lost his daughter in horrible circumstances to scarlet fever in 1907. And he said something to one of his closest friends, which I think is extremely revealing about the limits of consolation. He said to his friend, you know, I could write the songs on the death of children before I lost my daughter. But once I lost my daughter, I could never do them again. In other words, you can, he could anticipate consoling someone else for the loss of their children, but he couldn't write music to console himself for the loss of his child. What does that tell you? It tells you that there are some experiences so, uh, so terrible, so impossible to overcome that even music, even a great musician meets his uh, limit. So that's why Mahler is in, in the book. And also because, as I say, music has a power to console that words often don't. I also had a chapter, as you rightly said, about painting, because um, painting has an extraordinary um, visual power. And the painting I chose was by the great um, Greek-Spanish painter El Greco, uh, painting in 1586, around the same time that Montaigne was writing, he did a wonderful painting about the death of a local nobleman. And the point about the painting is that he shows three levels of time as being simultaneous. So he shows the heaven that we are hoping we will reach. He shows the present day of Toledo, 1586, and he shows the past. And they're all on one plane. And it the reason I, I find this painting so fascinating is that it elucidates something about consolation, which is that the great theme of consolation is actually time. The fact that time passes and we can't stop it. The fact that time can't go in reverse. The fact that time proceeds in one direction only and we can't get any of it back. And a lot of our anguish about life has to do with the one directional character of time. And yet in this painting, um, El Greco, the magician, just stops time. Past, present, and future are all on one piece of canvas. And so people come from all over the world and they think, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. And it is. People stand it for, in front of it for hours. And all I can say is, if you haven't seen it, go to Toledo and stand in this church and you'll have the same experience, I hope, uh, that I did. You write that music and art to be convincingly consoling must convey the reality of what it seeks consolation for. The necessary precondition of truly consoling works of art is that it knows of what it speaks because it earns the listener's assent to the transformation of the idea of death into a vision of peace and sleep. Yeah. Well, this is... This is why I, I wrote the book the way I did. I, I didn't I didn't have confidence that I could speak about consolation. I've had a happy in many ways blessed life. But that's why I did it historically, by going back to people who really did know what it was 
to lose uh, irrevocably, really did know what it was to be in prison fearing for your life, really did know uh, what it was to um, to suffer, and who wrote great works of art or painting or music that allow us to um, understand what it is we need consolation for, and through the beauty of what they've created, give us... <laughs> hope that we too can find consolation ourselves. You wrote something that sort of made me uh, well up with tears. You wrote that about music. You write that the time when music can help might come years later when you were sitting in a concert, listening to a musician play a passage and you were swept away. Memories return now not as unbearable, but still strong, that you sit in the darkened hall, concealing tears from people on either side, feeling gratitude that the music releases you so that you, so that your work of consolation can begin. It's wonderful stuff. Uh, I'm glad you, you, you found your way to that, that paragraph. It's obviously, you know, something that happened in my own life, and I've also seen it in other people. Um, it's one of the reasons why concert halls are dark, so that you can <laughs> you can experience these things on your own. But, uh, yeah. So the the last person I want to speak to before I let you make your closing argument the the <laughs> last person I want to speak to. No, I, I don't need. A, I think I'm already convicted. I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> well, you know, anything, you, you anything, can, I don't think anything's going to allow me to beat the rap here, Michael. Well, but maybe we can get you a parolable sentence. <laughs> the last person I want you to speak about is Cicely Saunders, because what she, I mean, she's a perfect concluding chapter and her notion of watch with me, very similar to the theme that we talked about of showing up and consoling the suffering. So can you tell us who she is and why you chose to end with her? Well, Cicely Saunders is um, an English doctor who essentially invented the hospice. Uh, There were other great American uh, partners in this and, um, but she is the woman uh, who in Britain uh, more than anybody else, she starts as a nurse and uh, in after the Second World War, and completely by accident, um, she ends up looking after um, a Polish guy who's dying of bowel cancer in a London hospital. And she begins to realize this is a terrible place for this guy to die. You know, we're on a general ward. There's noise or trays going by. People are groaning in the next bed. He has no privacy at all. And she begins to kind of revolt against the ways in which modern medicine is creating the the space in which people spend their last hours. And she then listens to patients for 15, 20 years. And uh, one of them says, uh, uh, one of them says to her something, which is just fantastic. She says, you know, Cicely Saunders asks her, where is the pain? And this patient who's dying of another cancer says to her, well, doctor, 
it's all over. All of me is wrong. And Cicely Saunders understands what that patient is trying to tell her, which is that um, she's not just suffering physical pain. She's suffering kind of other other pain relating to the fact that she hasn't made peace with her family. She hasn't got her private affairs in, in order. She's got children. She doesn't know how she's going to uh, how they're going to be taken care of after she's gone. And Cicely Saunders began to understand that death is the pain of dying is not just the physical pain of cancer, whatever it is that's carrying you off. It's also the pain of not having made peace with your whole life. And so she begins to think that that she needs to do two things. First, she needs to devise a pain regimen that will convert the terrible suffering of a thing like cancer into manageable pain so people can be conscious and think through the last phase of their life. And secondly, she needs to find a setting where they can sit with their family and they can, you know, do their wills and talk through, you know, the things that need to be sorted out in a family. And she creates this thing called a hospice. Um, What she understands that none of the other people in the book understood is consolation needs a space. It needs a place, peace and quiet, relief from pain, where you can be at peace with your loved ones, you can resolve family quarrels, and you can look at death and hopefully encounter it without without fear. And and thanks to her work and the palliative care revolution that she and a lot of other people um, created, um, it is now possible at last, I think, for many millions of people to die in a setting where they can find consolation. And that's why I ended the book with her, because I think she, in her quiet way, did more good than almost anybody else I can think of. I had the privilege of meeting her once, and she was just an unforgettable experience. She was this big, almost six-foot-tall woman uh, with this kind of cut-glass English accent with a wonderful sense of humor, um, extremely learned, fearless, courageous woman, who'd made her life's work um, helping people to find consolation when they die. And I just, I've never forgotten the impact she had on my life. And that's why I wanted to make sure she, I got her in the covers of the book. And she says, I guess it's Jesus who said it first, watch with me, sort of Camus-like, or as we discussed about Camus meant being there watching through the night so you can hear the dying speak. It's really a powerful message. Well, she took this, she was a person of religious faith and she, she um, went back to Jesus injunction to his disciples in the garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is getting ready to prepare himself to die. And she, he asked the disciples to watch with me and they didn't. That's the point. They didn't. And so she wanted to, they fell asleep, and she wanted to make sure that if she was ever in that situation again, she would not fall asleep. She would watch with the dying. And it does, as you say, connect to this very powerful image in Camus of an old lady sitting with a dying man and just mopping his hair and, you know, mopping his face as he goes through the last hours of his life. And I I think there's a tremendous consoling power in this 
image of human solidarity. Consolation is about solidarity. Con- consolation is about being with. Uh, and uh, Cicely Saunders understood that and tried to create an institution where that could happen. In your conclusion, you write of your work that you tried to show how the traditions of consolation forged over thousands of years remain capable of inspiring us today. I learned that we are never alone when we face pain and loss. There is always someone who has been there before and who can share that experience. And for you, that was very consoling. And I think for any reader of this book, it will be very consoling. But so take us out of the interview, Michael, with last words of what overarching lesson is there that you as the teacher would like us pupils to come away with? Well, I, I, since this is, since we're exiting, I do want to thank you for this conversation that it's been wonderful to be with someone who appears to understand what I'm trying to say and who obviously has such respect for some of these great people I've tried to bring to life. I, I, I think the, the fundamental point in the book, which I really did discover is, and I think we, everybody discovers this when they go through a hard time, is that you feel alone. Um, depression, loss, failure, grief are all experiences of solitude. Whatever else they are, they're a feeling of being alone, feeling that you're friendless, bereft, marooned, um, unable to face these things in company. You're, 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 you're in the storm alone. And, and I, I think one of the, the ways in which we find consolation is, is to return to human company somehow. And the, the chapters in this book and the great writers and artists that I talk about are there, I think, in the past. Um, they're on our bookshelves. They're in, they're, they're very close by. And so if you feel alone when you experience these terrible experiences of life, um, they're there to tell you, no, you're not alone. There have always been people who've been through this and we can help. Yeah, we can listen to you. Uh, the words that we wrote 2,000 years ago are there to help you, which is why when you're in a hotel room, you know, the Gideon Bible people are pretty smart. They put that those psalms right in the drawer by your bed because they know that there's a moment in the deep of the night when you feel fear and you feel loneliness and you fear isolation. And that is a good moment, whether you're a believer or not, to open the pages of the Psalms and read these words, because you will be hearing another human being across 2,000 years telling you, I know exactly what you're feeling right now. And that can be very consoling. The book is On Consolation, Finding Solace in Dark Times. Michael, this is a great read. I hope it finds a wide audience because for me, it was consoling to remember and then also learn of many who spoke about the things that we all deal with every day before us. So thank you for sharing your time with us. And I thank you very much for writing this wonderful book. Thank you, Michael. Really enjoyed talking to you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. 
Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.